philanthropy has got caught in the crossfire of other debates, which are about excessive wealth, which are about um, under taxation, which are about um, inequality. And, you know, I'm signed up to all those, uh, those points of view. You know, I would rather live in a more equal society. Everyone hates writing, but everyone loves having written. And I definitely subscribe to that. You know, it's it's a great feeling when you finally manage to get down on paper what it is you wanted to say, especially if you feel it needs saying. Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Beth Breeze, a really warm welcome to Purposely Podcast. Thank you for having me. First question, how did you get your job? So my job is to study and research and teach about philanthropy and fundraising. And I do agree that's a, a slightly unusual uh, job. Um, I came to it after doing all of those things for about 10 years. So when I left university, I all I knew is I wanted to be useful. Um, and I didn't come from a particularly privileged background. So I didn't have a huge sense of what kind of jobs were out there, really. I, I only knew about social work and teaching and, and they're great jobs, but I didn't really think I had the sort of the personality and, and, and the, the sort of personal uh, sort of characteristics to do those. So I, um, I looked at the charity sector because that seemed another obvious place where you can do good. So my first job was as a fundraising officer uh, in a youth homelessness charity called the Cardinal Hume Centre in London. And um, I became a fundraising officer rather than any other job because, frankly, there's more uh, opportunities in fundraising. It's, it's, it's hard to get a first job in a charity, but raising the money is, is, is where more jobs are than, than other jobs. And I loved it from day one. I absolutely loved the way you could bring together a, a good organisation that needs resources with people who are good people who've got resources and you match make them together and the magic happens. And I've always viewed fundraising uh, as being that kind of matchmaking, um, creating opportunities for both the donor uh, and the recipient organisation. Um, and I absolutely loved doing it. But as time went on, I began to realise that not everyone else saw fundraising like that. You know, people thought of it as begging or hassling or haranguing people and so on. And I just became more and more curious about how we could better explain really how the generation of income happens. And, and as a fundraiser, I wanted to read books and take courses and learn more. And they really weren't available. This is like the late 1990s. So gradually I moved from doing fundraising to studying fundraising. I, I went back to university did a PhD and then managed to basically stay put. I've been at the University of Kent since doing the PhD there and have built up a centre on philanthropy where we study both the demand side of philanthropy, the fundraising and the supply side, the donors. And that's what I do now. Wonderful. And were you a very good fundraiser? I was okay. I don't think I was um, the best fundraiser ever, but um, I think a lot of it is people skills and passion. And I certainly had them uh, that had the passion in abundance. Um, I didn't know much about technique. And that's what I mean about wanting to share that kind of best practice. An awful lot of fundraising, um, people learn on the job. You know, when you ask people, why do you do that? You know, why do you send a mailing out at that time of year, you know, just before Christmas rather than early in the new year? Or why do you throw three events a year rather than one or 10? You know, all these kind of questions about what fundraisers do, there, there doesn't tend to be an evidence-based answer. The answer tends to be, well, that's what we've always done, or that's what the person before me did, or, you know, everyone else in fundraising seems to think that this works. So um, I think it's quite hard to, to excel at the sort of science of fundraising when it's so little known. Um, and again, that's what I wanted to, to try and map out. You know, are there 
techniques and practices? Is, is there a body of knowledge that we can share to elevate and raise all causes that are trying to raise money? Yeah. And is it art or is it science? A bit of both. <laughs> so what, what an unusual academic answer to say a bit of both. Um, yeah, I mean, you can have all the technique in the world, but if you don't have people skills and passion, then you're probably not going to make a good fundraiser. Equally, if all you've got is, is that with no um, technical knowledge, you know, you probably get further than the other way around. But the ideal fundraiser, I think, has, has both and is open to learning because fundraising never stands still. And this is the, 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 the big secret or problem with best practice is that just because something works this year, people tire of it. You know, you're, you're trying to delight donors, you're trying to be innovative, you're trying to find new ways of bringing, bringing in support and, and most importantly, holding on to that support. You can't keep doing the same thing year on year. So it's very much a moving target. So you have to be quite entrepreneurial and creative and come up with new events and new approaches and new ways of storytelling about your cause. So there's a real creative side to being a fundraiser, I think. Yeah, I remember doing an uh, American University paper called the, it was 101 of, of fundraising. And I remember that foundational kind of experience being really important and actually helped me fall in love with fundraising to a certain extent. I wasn't very good at it, but the fundraising pyramid, that's, that's my memory. Like, does, is that still a thing? Yeah, well, one of our essay titles that we set our students is, you know, discuss whether the fundraising pyramid is a useful concept or not. Um, some people would say it's it's not the kind of very equilateral triangle that you that you imagine. It's a much taller, thinner pyramid because actually one or two donors at the top can often produce a huge amount of the the income rather than you know the, the sort of more moderate amount. So you, you're more reliant on a smaller handful of people than perhaps the, the traditional shaped pyramid would suggest. Um, but look, these are all just good thinking tools. I think that fundraisers, you know, it's, it's, it's fundamentally about relationships, isn't it? Going back to that point of bringing together people who've got resources and people who need resources or organisations that need resources. So, you know, you can have all the, the, the tools and concepts you like, fundraising pyramids, donor gift tables, constituency circles, you know, cycles and so on. But you're, it's always people asking people, um, to do something. Yeah. So, um, you know, th these tools are just are just that really. And if they're not working in that particular case, then then we need to put them back in the box and, and get back to talking to a, a fellow human being about what moves them and what change they want to see in the world and whether or not our organisation can help them achieve that. And it's not an easy role. Um, and, you know, I used to, we used to sort of joke, I was in the, in, similar to you, in London in the 90s. And, you know, we'd say people would last sort of two and a half years, just enough to construct a fundraising strategy that get halfway through it. And then when the money didn't come in, they would leave to another charity. But maybe that's being a bit cynical. No, I mean, I think there's a fair <laughs> point there. There's, there is a problem of churn. Um, I think two and a half years might even be longer than what I remember. I mean, 18 months people would stay. Now, part of the problem was because if you were very good, uh, as soon as you, you know, started showing you're a good fundraiser, your phone went and, you know, recruitment consultants would be uh, making you very exciting and attractive offers. And you can climb the career ladder quite quickly, which is obviously very attractive for young, ambitious people. But I do think that I, I, it's better to stay put for a while to to see through, as you say, to see through those those projects that you start. You know, it can take a number of years to go from first meeting a potential donor or first contacting a foundation to the donation happening. So if you leave after 18 months or two and a half years, you probably haven't seen it through. But I do understand you know, the churn is just uh, a result of, of the lack of supply of good fundraisers. And um, so what we need is more more fundraisers who, who see this as a passionate job. But the real reason I think it's a hard job is actually because it's so misunderstood. 
I don't think actually the content of the job is 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 is, is so grueling and, and it's certainly very rewarding. I, I used to think that if I could bring in a big gift, it was the closest I could be to actually being a philanthropist. You know, um, I'm not from wealth and I, I I don't have resources myself, but if I can make that happen, you know, when you make a million pound gift happen, there's no better feeling. Um, you know, I'm never going to be able to give a million, but I can help make a million gift happen. So it's a nice job, but what makes it hard is when your colleagues and when the board and other people don't understand what you're doing and they think that you're just begging or, you know, um, hobnobbing with donors and all you do is attend cocktail parties with a glass of champagne in your hand and and then suddenly the, the, the money just magically appears. And I think fundraising is one of the most misunderstood professions. Yeah. Um, and, I, and that's one of my main goals in my work is to explain. It's, it, I know it's a bit of a cliched analogy, but it's the swan analogy. The fundraiser might look like they're just schmoozing at a, a cocktail reception, but the amount of work that's gone in to making that event happen, getting the right people in the room, having the brochures and the presentation, making sure that the chair is briefed, you know, huge amount of leg kicking underneath the water. And then you glide in. And yes, it might look like you didn't, you know, the, the money came easily, but it certainly didn't come easily. Yeah, I agree. And data is important. Investment's important. Mm-hmm. Time. And, and then sort of leadership that will, you know, give you that time. And, and all of those things are really important. And, and really understanding your kind of case for support and being really sure about that because you know you've got to sell it to donors so yeah i know it, it is a great sector no all of that is right mark i mean that's all of those things and if you had to pick just one of those things i would say investment you know you have to spend money to raise money you know sometimes you can you can get lucky and bring in some money quite quickly or there happens to be a really warm donor who maybe was around the founder of the charity for example and it looks like fundraising doesn't cost much money because you brought in a decent amount of money without spending much on fundraising but for a sustainable long-term income generation model you have to spend money uh, to raise money and and my first job you know they paid me a decent salary for a first you know brand new fundraiser they sent me on training um they paid for me to become a member of the uk institute of fundraising and i've never forgotten that that they invested in me and i'm sure that helped me be a better fundraiser than the many people i know who get appointed and then just left to it you know no budget no training no support really but expected to magic up very large sums of money um so i think it's really important that the colleagues and managers of fundraisers understand that you know to get the money to come in you have to you have to invest and treat people well so you've written two books which is fantastic um one of the books i love the title of why rich people give um that was your first book was it or have you written and then it was in defense of philanthropy was which was your first so the very first one was uh, richer lives why rich people give um there's actually a couple of others um there's one called the new fundraisers um and that's the one in which i set out you know, who are these people who organize uh generosity and i, I prefer to use the word generosity uh, than, than philanthropy in some instances so who are the new fundraisers who, who who make that happen and that's where i explain about the art and the science of fundraising and really try to make the case for understanding and respecting the profession of, of fundraising and that's that's quite an empirical book which means i collected a lot of data i surveyed well over a thousand uk fundraisers and when i say survey it was a long survey they filled in um, about 70 questions including a big personality 
um, test and an emotional intelligence scale. And I really wanted to dig deep and work out who are these people that are good at raising money. And you know, you won't be surprised to hear they tend to be very emotionally intelligent people. They tend to be quite extrovert, quite open to new ideas, quite creative and so on. So yeah, so the, the new fundraisers was me very much looking at the demand side of philanthropy. And I, I, was, I really loved doing that project. But that led on to the, the latest book, which is just out now called In Defense of Philanthropy. And that's the supply side, you know, the donors. Who are these people who give, who respond to requests? And, um, and just trying to better understand their motivations, their actions, their impact. And in particular, through the lens of why so often do we tend to criticize and knock, especially the biggest givers, rather than say that's a good thing. So that's what the latest book is about. Yeah, and I really want to go into that in a minute. One of the things you wrote in the book, I don't know if you remember writing this, is but you apologised to your husband, Michael, and your children, and that thanking them, uh, apologising and thanking them about the inattentive grump that you've been for an unreasonable amount of time. Do you remember writing that? And, um, you know, it's kind of a lead into what is it like to write a book? Yeah, I mean, I, I did write that and I meant it. And then when the book came out and we went out for pizza to celebrate the book, my husband very kindly said I wasn't too grumpy. And my kids said, well, mum, you were really rubbish at homeschooling. So it was a good job you were in your office writing the book because you were a really bad homeschooler. This is during the COVID lockdown. So they were quite, it turns out they were quite happy to have me out of the way while they got on with their schoolwork at the, the dining room table downstairs. So perhaps I misunderstood the situation a little. <laughs> Is it like having a baby? What's what is it? What you, what's the analogy? Like writing a book and then. Well, when you have a baby, all you want to do is sleep. And when you have a when you're writing a book, all you want to do is get some words down on the screen. So they're a little bit different because you don't want to go to bed. You want to stay up. A lot of writing, I think, happens late at night or early in the morning when the rest of the house is asleep. So it's different in that way. Um, I I think there's this nice saying that everyone hates writing, but everyone loves having written. And I definitely subscribe to that. You know, it's it's a great feeling when you finally manage to get down on paper what it is you wanted to say, especially if you feel it needs saying. And of all my books, you know, I was really happy to explain what fundraisers do. And I was very happy to do that first book on, on why rich people give. But this book needed saying, in my opinion, I needed to set out the case for why philanthropy is, a, is overall a good thing. Not every philanthropist, not every philanthropic action, but overall, it's better that we have philanthropy, private giving, than that we don't. And I've never felt such a, a, a need to, to get that message across. It felt something worth saying. And the response to the book so far, I think, has, has shown that. I mean, fundraisers have seemed to be quite relieved that somebody said big donors are not always, you know, raging egotists who are tax dodging and wanting to get their names on things and you know so on this kind of normative idea of, of, of what the big donor is like you know because it's hard to work with them if, if everyone's knocking them and saying that then you're know, not good people and um, so certainly I, I was pleased to, to try and help and, and that's why I see the supply and the demand of, of philanthropy and fundraising is so interconnected if philanthropists have a bad rap if people think it's not a good thing then that makes fundraising harder you know especially major donor fundraising mm -hmm. so I don't see them as, as separate things so no um it, I'm not going to pretend it's easy to write 80,000 words because it isn't but it's when you really feel it's worth saying then that that keeps you going what was your discipline um, I, we are going to get on to the philanthropy in a minute but did you set a target a word target did you write straight to screen like and you said you did it hours of the day when people weren't necessarily up in the house but yeah was there a discipline that you and was it seven days a week I have two strategies Mark and you might not believe either of them the first is that I lied to myself a lot so I'd sit down at you know nine o'clock at night ten o'clock at night and I lied that I'm just going to do half an hour 
that's all you've got to do is just and then you can go to bed at half past 10 and of course what happens is you start writing and you get into it you don't want to start I guess it's like going for a run or doing anything that's a bit difficult you, the hardest bit is starting but once you start you're glad you did it so I lie to myself even now you know um, I, I still lie to myself when I sit down to write that I'm only going to do half an hour or write a few hundred words and inevitably I'm there hours later and thousands of words later. So that's, that's strategy number one. Strategy number two is mint chocolate. <laughs> I am an absolute sucker for especially dark mint chocolate. I love, and I have boxes of them in my, in my office. So whenever my energy starts to flag, I just open another box of mint chocolates and I can keep going for another hour. <laughs> Wonderful. Because I kind of imagine it becomes, during the period of writing it, it's like all you think about. Does it become quite an obsessive play in your head? You become a real bore. I mean, I can turn any conversation into a conversation about philanthropy. You know, if I'm standing at the school gate with the other mums and dads picking up kids, if I'm in the pub with friends, if I'm, you know, whatever I'm doing, I can always. And that's partly because fundraising and philanthropy are all around us, which is why I love studying it and teaching it. You know, it's, it's everywhere. It's part of everybody's daily life. But yeah, when you're writing about it, of course, you're trying out ideas and thinking, I wonder if this argument, you know, works. Let me try it out on people. So, you know, that's probably subconscious. You're not, you're not meaning to use all your friends as a focus group. But I think you, you become a little bit, um, perhaps what I should have apologised to my kids for was for, for boring them rather than for being a grump. Fair, fair <laughs> enough. Well, philanthropy has had a kicking, uh, especially over the last 18 months. And, uh, you know, I'm just thinking sort of the pressure the National Trust has come under and your defence of philanthropy really stood out to me, actually, as some as, um, straight away had my interest um, because it actually it feels like you're a little bit on your own. Like there's more people out there wanting to kick it. Would that be right? Certainly being quite public about the kicking. There's a lot of people who, who uh, back it and believe in it as well, but they're quieter. Let's look at why it gets kicking. What are the what are the sort of the main things? I think it definitely feels like there are more critics than there are fans of philanthropy. It may just be that the the, the fans are quieter. Um, certainly in the period before I started the book, I I knew there were lots of people who felt the same as me. You know, not exactly the same. We all have different, slightly different views, but broadly speaking, felt philanthropy was a good thing, and that a lot of the criticism was unfair. You know, we'd we'd hear someone give a talk knocking philanthropy, or a new book would come out, and everyone would be talking about it. But you know at conferences and at events, me and my kind of peers would say, gosh, that was a little bit over the top, that wasn't it? Or, well, you know, it's a bit unnuanced. And so I knew there were other people who who, who felt the same way, but I just realised that, you know, that it wasn't doing much good just us all sitting around in the bar after a talk, agreeing with each other without actually setting out a counter argument. So that's, that's why I felt it needed to be done. Um, look, I think a lot of this is because people are understandably critical of wealth and especially of um, extreme wealth. So what, what I think has happened to a large extent is that philanthropy has got caught in the crossfire of other debates, which are about excessive wealth, which are about um, under taxation, which are about um, inequality. And, you know, I'm signed up to all those uh, those points of view. You know, I would rather live in a more equal society in which we pay higher tax. Nobody dodges tax. We have well-funded um, you know, universal, high quality public services. That is the kind of society I want to live in. But even when you have that, there is still a role for philanthropy. People still want to do things for each other that go beyond what they do as a taxpayer and as a consumer. So you can have a wonderful you know, school service, health service, but you still think, do you know what, I'd like to um, you know, kids who've got cancer, I'd like them to go to Disney World. So let's all club together and, and pay for that. Or let's put some art on the walls of the hospitals. Or let's, 
you know, add, add a new facility for, you know, the school. You know, there's always extra things you can do. You know, you, you have a great museum, but you want another wing of the museum. So it, it, there's no need is not finite. There's always more we can do for each other as fellow citizens. So one of my, you know, key points is that we shouldn't say tax is good and philanthropy is bad. And that if you therefore promote and encourage philanthropy, you somehow prefer a smaller state or, you, you know, you don't mind people dodging tax and what have you that's a really false opposition there are many people many big donors i've interviewed over the years are very generous and also believe in in paying tax and would happily pay more tax and have have gone on record saying that and when people get sort of um criticized for the vanity of philanthropy which you know can be a thing you know or actually when funders fund the wrong things or they you know they give fuel to something which is not doing a good service to the world so there can be negative forms of philanthropy i guess but yeah you said at the start that you you felt there's a definite majority uh doing it for the right reasons would you also that say that they're doing it in the right way i mean i, I think we don't have the data to be honest to to say you know, how many, how much philanthropy is good, how much philanthropy is bad, and how much is indifferent. My argument is really quite simple, that it can be good. It, that there is clearly evidence of good philanthropy. You know, people are alive today who would not be alive today if there wasn't philanthropy funding, you know, vaccines and global health. And uh, people have better lives than they would have had because they've had scholarships, they've had opportunities, their communities have got nicer facilities and so on. So, you know, the critics of philanthropy, if you say that all philanthropy is power, and all philanthropy is an, an elite charade funding fake change, then the onus is on you to prove that all of it is, is problematic. My argument is, is actually much easier to prove that philanthropy can be a force for good. Um, here are lots of examples. My book you know, has, is, is full of examples of people who've um, you know, given sums of money and achieved change, which you know, most people would agree you know, is a good thing. As I say, whether it's uh, vaccines or, or whether it's um, campaigns that have banned handguns in the UK and, and have, have made sure that we don't have school shootings in the way that, that other countries like the US do or have you know, achieved have uh, achieved outcomes which are you know pretty uh, pretty easy to say are good so so that's all i'm saying is that philanthropy is a social act in it like any social act you can do it badly you know philanthropy is fallible because people are fallible so of course there will be some donors who who misunderstand how charities work or who perhaps are a bit pushy in what they want uh, to to have in terms of their their voice maybe within the charity or do it they give a small sum of money then think that they can direct exactly how the charity works but that that's when the recipient has to have the confidence to argue back and say look that's not what we're here to do that's not how it works because donations have to be accepted as well as given you know donors do not have ultimate power they can't just make anyone do anything they've got money but they need they need other people to spend that money so i i hope to embolden fundraisers and charities and those on the receiving end to say actually here's what we do we do it well this is what we need money for and have that conversation and most donors are open to that because they want their money to be spent well so i think again this is another example of something that's misunderstood i think by a lot of observers they think that if somebody waves a lot of money around then a charity will just take it whether they actually you know whether it's for the right thing or not going back to your point though about is it vanity this is one of those classic lose-lose situations for big donors. You know, if they put their name on a project, on a building or what have you, or they accept media coverage and tell the world they gave this money, it's very easy to accuse them of being um, driven by reputational um, concerns. You know, you, all you want is your name all over everything and everyone to think well of you. If they don't give publicly, if they give privately, 
uh, they equally get criticised. What are you, why are you doing it secretly? You're being untransparent. You know, you're opaque. What, what's your agenda? So you can't win, really, um, whether you give publicly or privately. Um, if somebody wants to criticise you for that, then they can. And what a lot of people who worry about um, the reputation side of things don't realise is that often it's not the donor who chose to attach their name to it. It's the fundraiser who says, do you know what, if you put your name on that building or in the programme or let us tell the world you've given this money, that will help us bring in other big donors. It will help us. It gives us a media opportunity to tell the world about what we do. And it's kind of peer um, peer approval, you know, signalling to, to other people like you that we're the kind of cause, you know, you've done your due diligence, this money will be spent well. So people often misunderstand that naming is, is for the benefit of the charity, not for the donor. And I, I would really hope to just explain some of these quite simple things to, to those who otherwise might assume it's a, a an easy criticism to make of philanthropists. And has philanthropy got too strategic? Like, <laughs> Because there's been a real sort of um, shift, you know, like furrowed brows and I know, you know, criticism of, of simplistic giving and it must be more strategic. Um, does does some of that stuff frustrate you? I think like any world, there's always pendulum swinging, isn't it? There's always trends. And, you know, in I've been around long enough now to see a, a shift from, um, oh, we must have metrics, we must have KPIs, you must tell us exactly how the money will be spent, otherwise we won't give, to back now more trust-based philanthropy. Let's let's work together with beneficiaries, let's let's not impose really onerous reporting requirements and so on. So p- pendulum swing, and that's okay, that happens, I assume, in any sector. We're all trying to work out the best way to do things. I think the reality, even though you have a lot of noise around strategic philanthropy the reality was always that philanthropy is is personal it's deeply personal people to give give to what they know and care about so if you or your loved one has been affected by a disease you're going to support that disease and not another disease if you come from a particular community you're more likely to care about what happens in that community than in another one that you've got no direct connection to that's one of the many reasons why philanthropy can never replace the state because you know, state provision has to be universal, whereas philanthropy is, is deeply personal. Um, so so I, I don't worry too much about these things. I worry that the trends can then be misinterpreted as, oh, this is what all big donors think. So I think the classic example would be philanthrocapitalism. Now, that word was coined as the title of a book uh, that was written by a journalist and an economist. They came up with this phrase. They they described it. They advocated for it. They thought it was a good thing to use, you know, business principles in the nonprofit sector, and they used examples of, of of that in action. What's happened over time is that people have imagined that philanthropists came up with this idea, and that that's how all philanthropy works. And I don't, you know, I don't meet donors who say I am a philanthrocapitalist. I, I I've never heard a donor use that phrase describe themselves as a philanthrocapitalist. Yet it's become quite a, an easy stick to beat big donors with. Yeah. And I think it's not fair to blame donors for concepts and ideas that are introduced by non-donors. And going back to what you said earlier, it's interesting because I remember um, New Philanthropy Capital, which is in the UK, set up by some chaps from the city who had realized that, you know, sort of impact measurement, really holding, you know, the, the feet of, of charities to the fire um, that they were doing what they said they were going to do. And then sort of they started off by doing some analysis and almost grading charities off against each other, but actually stopped doing that. And they've become go on to be hugely beneficial to the sector. You know, there is some rigor in the sector, isn't there? And that, that part of it has developed somewhat. But 
there's still I love I probably personally like venture philanthropy so this idea that philanthropy can help organizations charities nonprofits social enterprises take some risks to solve the world's big problems potentially I remember when New Philanthropy Capital was founded, there was such an explosion of activity in, in, in the UK, in London, especially around the millennium. And, and NPC was one of those organisations that emerged then. And it was a very exciting time to be to be in philanthropy. And, you know, what, what I remember about their founding was that they they believed that donors were seeking that professional advice. You know, they, they it wasn't that they lacked generosity or altruistic intention but in order to put that intention into action they needed more data they needed more information so the, i think it was the idea that they'd found a gap that if they could provide this information then then the money would flow um i think you're right that what's happened over time is they've shifted from focusing on donors as clients to focusing on charities as clients because actually charities don't need their feet holding to any fire they want to know if that what they're doing is actually achieving any good you know any any organization would gather data as it goes along to check that it's it's moving towards its goal to check that you know the the, the way it's it's is operating and the way it's spending money is is optimal so you know, a lot of this this movement really is going with the flow of how any good charity would be. They would collect this data anyway. And what what I've discovered when I've I've interviewed a lot of, of of large donors over time, and I often ask them, you know, how do you feel about all this um this this push for data and so on? They tend to say that by the time they've become a big donor, they the trust is already there. You know, they're happy that the charity collects data. Of course, you know, they, they tend to be business people, so they, they understand the value of, of these things. But they personally don't you know, necessarily want to wade through a, a very, very long you know, impact measurement report with, with loads of data because they've reached the point by the time they're giving a million pound donation, they've been involved with that charity for a long time. They trust the leadership. They know what it does. They, they understand how the charity functions. So I think that sometimes we misunderstand who this data is for. It might actually be for the lower level beginning donors, not for the really big ones who are already almost on the inside of the charity. Yeah. And, and that's when you know, by the way, that you, the major donor is, is really, um, you know, really gets it when they start using language like we rather than you. You know, how, how, how did we do this year? How are we going to cope with that crisis? How can we bring in some more supporters? That's your ideal major donor. And, and that person doesn't need impressing with all the facts and figures because they're on the inside. They, they're, they're part of helping get the facts and figures together to impress other people, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think they're less sensitive about that kind of being appreciated. That's why I give or, you know, I didn't hear from you. If they're really engaged with what the charity are doing and the impact they're making. One awesome thing I saw funders do and I think played a really important role is sort of, especially through that sort of 90s, period is actually kind of banging the fists on the desk and saying you guys need to work together to solve some of these issues and doing that actually did get organizations to collaborate new horizon youth center is one of the charities you have a, as a case study in the book um it's a charity that i know fairly well um tell me about them and why you featured them in the book? Sure. Well, I was looking for a really strong opening example. Um, and I would say it's more an example than a case study because I don't dig too deep into any of any of the, the scenarios that I present. I just wanted to offer some counter examples of philanthropy that is not 
um, you know, over overly powerful, influential, tax dodging, you know, annoying, all the things that the critics say. So I, I have spoken to a lot of philanthropists over the years in my research, and I'm, I'm lucky enough to, to to carry on meeting with many of them either at events or you know we just go for coffees, and I just you know how's it going? What's happening with your your philanthropy? And and this particular philanthropist, David Gold, which is a marvelous surname for a, uh, for a generous person, he's um, he's a really interesting philanthropist, very sincere, very. Um, engaged with the non-profit sector he runs a recruitment consultancy so he's, he's very in touch with the front line of, of, of practitioner life and he was just telling me about um, a charity that he's supported for a long time it's as you you know at New Horizons Youth Centre it's near King's Cross which is a uh, has been quite a difficult part of London um, the a lot of people come off the trains uh, at King's Cross perhaps from Eastern Europe who don't have somewhere to go are very open to exploitation and they realised a few years ago that that their client group was changing because rather than just being locally living young people who maybe needed a bit of help with education or career advice and so on, they were seeing more and more of these really very vulnerable young girls who were uh, coming off the train and being basically picked up off the platform by people who then um, exploited them and took them into sex work. Um, and this is, of course, you know, terrible. And, and, and the centre wanted to try and help these young women, but didn't have really a way to get them through the door of the centre. So David Gold was having a conversation with the, the leader of this charity and he said, tell me, tell me what you would want me to fund if you thought that I would say yes. You know, if you weren't just trying to say the kind of thing that you thought would appeal to me, what's the thing you really, really want money for? So the, the director of the centre said, well, really, what I'd like is money to be able to give these young women something that's really nice for them, something that makes them feel good about themselves, increases their confidence and their self-esteem to get them through the door. And then if they want to, but no pressure, if they want to take advantage of the other things we offer, like education and uh, you know career support and personal development and so on, then they will. So David said, fine. He said, I'll, I'll, if that's what you think needs funding, I'll fund it. Um, and then so they provided then massage and aromatherapy and other kind of pampering treatments for these these young women. And, you know, as predicted, some of them then did increase their self-esteem, did feel better about themselves, took advantage of the the other things offered by the charity and, uh, uh, you know, managed to get out of that terrible situation they got into. And the reason I start that book with the, the with that story is because I, I really wanted to use the opening sentence. This is a story about, you know, people with a lot of money, philanthropists and, and prostitutes. And I knew it would be eye-catching. And I know that sometimes you have to um, do, do that to try and grab yeah. attention basically take south yeah I didn't well I didn't want people to think this was going to be a very dull and worthy book um, even though I think the, the argument is worthwhile people don't want to be preached at they don't want it to be told all all rich people are good and, and so on it's, it's not an apologist for the rich this book it's about offering a counter argument it's about offering a different perspective and saying that not all philanthropists are egotistical idiots some of them are very thoughtful like David Gold and really want to know how they can use their money to make the world a better place and are open to being told you you know you might think this is a mad idea but this is what I want to spend it on and then they trust the charity and say okay fair enough so that's one of many examples through the book where philanthropists act in ways that go against how many people imagine big donors to be and I just really wanted to put on record now I didn't want to just throw more anecdotal data you know at, at, at the debate because of course that doesn't get us really anywhere you you name a bad donor I name a good donor you know that that's not helpful but what I think it is helpful to do is to say you can't say all philanthropy is a charade is fake change is about power is about you know trampling over non-profits and making them do what you want them to do you know here are some examples where that doesn't happen so that's why I think those examples were important
as we move towards wrapping up, just to check in on the book. So how's it gone? Like what's the reaction been? And has there been a lot of um, lovely messages, a lot of nice reviews? What's the... Yeah, I'd, I've been really happy with the response, but I, I would I will share with you something quite interesting about the response. So the demand side of philanthropy, so the fundraisers and the charity leaders have been far more positive and enthusiastic because they know the donors. They say, yeah, what I see in the newspaper and on social media does not accurately reflect the people I deal with, you know, the generous people who support us. Thank you so much for giving a different perspective and also for helping to um, you know, to, to, to sort of push back against this discouragement of philanthropy because we need more people to want to be philanthropists. So so on that side of things, people there's almost like a sigh of relief from the fundraising industry, I think, that somebody's saying, you know, philanthropy is a good thing. Where I've had slightly more critical response is from donors themselves. So I've, I've presented the book a couple of times to groups of donors and they are still, not all of them, but some of them are still very caught up in, gosh, you know, we are problematic. Um, we have this wealth, you know, perhaps we, we didn't we didn't earn it, perhaps it's inherited. And I, I, I understand that and I respect that. I really do. Um, but it's been really interesting from my, my perspective to see that there's, a, you know, less less acceptance of my argument from the big from some big donors themselves uh, than from people who work with big donors. And I, I'm still kind of get trying to get my head around what that's about, really. I think perhaps people have been they've spent five or 10 years being told that they are problematic and it's going to take a while for them to perhaps believe that, that they, that it's not all problematic and that, that what they do is yeah. valued and appreciated. Fascinating. Um, and it has a good, a good response in this, in America, an American well, audience. Not, today, the, the today that we're re- recording it, the 9th of November is the day that it's launched in the U S so it was launched in the UK, the 30th of September. Um, so lots of Brits have read it. And, and so when I see people, they've, they've usually at least skimmed it, but it's only out in the US today. So um, people know about it. Um, obviously, advanced copies have been sent to a few people and social media is global. So people see the odd quotes that, that you know, that, that come up reviews or people saying, you know, they've had it. But no, it's a little too early to tell yet, really. But I hope so, because a lot of the criticism of philanthropy actually comes from, from a very specific American context. So worries about political influence of donors, worries about funding of policy oriented you know, think tanks and research institutions, uh, worries about enormous sums of money. These are all American situations. We don't have that problem in, in the UK. Now, you're, you're not allowed to fund political uh, activity. That's not charitable by our law. We don't have too many big donors. We have too few big donors. So one of my goals is to help Americans see that you, you might have some local difficulties that you need to sort out. Um, you know, some of these problems are government problems. You, you don't have a national health service. Perhaps your funding of public schools is not optimal. Sort those things out. Don't blame philanthropy for government failure. So so a lot of my argument is directed at the American context. So I do hope that, I hope they read it and I hope they like it. But I hope also that we can all see that you know, America is only 4% of the global population, but they dominate 99% of debates about philanthropy. And I think that's that's not helpful because just because it happens in America doesn't mean that's what philanthropy in New Zealand is like or what philanthropy in Cairo is like or what philanthropy in London is like um, because it's different around the world. Wonderful. All the best with the launch of the book in America and a big appreciation for joining me on Purpose the Podcast. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for asking me about it and good luck to you and all of your listeners. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing because I sure do. 